Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. And welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Baba Yaga! This week, we are talking about what happens after you get married. Setting up house. Getting getting all your stuff together. Moving in together. The whole, the whole shebang. Making a chore chart. <laughs> Deciding who's going to cook dinner. <laughs> Mine is, but like, my half is actually about the chore chart. <laughs> Yeah, my half is about, like, how do you get a house when there is no housing market? How do you get furniture when, you know, there is no, like, there's really not a furniture store yet? So, as per usual, I'm going to start us off in the pre-modern world, and then I will hand it off to Margot. So, antiquity is uh, pretty easy, because as we've discussed before, when you... A grown man would marry your, like, 13-year-old bride. You would just move her into your parents' house. And everyone would just live happily ever after in their multi-generational home. And that was that. And then, you know, eventually your parents would die. And then you would inherit the home. And then your sons would bring their 13-year-old brides into the house. You know, it was a really solid system. Lots of stability. Uh, didn't didn't have too much to worry about, like you know. What what your bride was maybe gonna bring some like personal items, like maybe some clothes, and that was about it. Because the rest of the house was already done, and, th- and there's no need to make a chore chart because you already have you know your mother running the household, and then your new wife just like does whatever your mother tells her to do. So that that solves that. I want to like throw shade on antiquity. But I really hate talking about it. <laughs> it's so gross. <laughs> there's a reason I don't. Uh, <laughs> there's a reason I don't uh, go go that far back in my own research because I just there's like not that there's like a, a a good a good time in history and like the 19th century is arguably like some of the worst, but also the this whole. The, the beginning of all of these episodes have been very, like, oh, and then a child. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of, and then a child. <laughs> but anyway, let's get into my favorite time period, the Middle Ages. <laughs> well known for being just a fantastic time to be alive. Real 10 out of 10. However, again, as we've talked about, this is a time where you actually do have to set up a house when you get married because novelty alert you were if you were a grown man you were marrying a woman who was also a grown woman you know again aside from like you know maybe if you aside from like you know I don't know maybe in like some like aristocratic situations right where it was like 12 year old girl getting married for political purposes but like overall 
oh, you know, for for the vast, vast majority, it wouldn't, you know, it was two people in their 20s. Good soup. Good soup. <laughs> soup and a sandwich together, that's a proper lunch. It's a... It's sort of an old Tim Hortons commercial. Oh my god. <laughs> Real Canadians will remember the babushka, the babushka Tim Hortons commercial where it's old ladies chasing down like harried young office workers who are like stuffing a granola bar into their faces and saying, no, no, soup and sandwich together. That is a proper lunch. And then it's Tim Hortons advertising that they have a new soup and sandwich for lunch deal. Where you can, like, get it as a combo. I was just referencing the Adam Driver thing on TikTok. The sound on TikTok. If anybody wants to know what side of uh, TikTok Baba Yaga's on, it's uh, the good soup and... <laughs> like a baka. <laughs> and I was making references to Canadian commercials from circa 2005. Really thriving over here. All right, so let's figure this out. You just got married in the Middle Ages, and you are both adults. So first questions first. Where are you actually going to set up your house? Are you going to go to the groom's hometown, the bride's hometown? Are you moving somewhere else entirely? Well, in a lot of ways, just like today, it really depends on your current financial situation and current, you know, work situation. So for a lot of young people who, say, went into a city to find work and maybe they didn't really have anything to go back to in their home villages, right? Like if you'd met in like London or Paris, you'd probably set up like a little house situation. You'd find a place to live in one of the, like in the town that you met. However, if you maybe had met otherwise or, you know, had land to go back to or if you had perhaps like if one of you had like inherited any land because like in some cases women could inherit like some amount of land um much more common for men to inherit of course um but yeah so you could end up moving closer to either of your families basically depending on who who had a likely means of making a living um, and especially in the earlier stages, it's very interesting because this is when last names are still in flux. And we have um, instances, right, where a lot of men would change their last names to their wife's last name because they were moving closer to her family and she had a family place name. So, like, if your name was John River because you lived near the river and then you married, like, Anne Hill, and you went and lived, like, closer to her family, and now you set up a house on the hill, your name becomes John Hill in the records, because, like, you know, in the 10th, 11th, even as the 12th centuries, like, these last names get, are very, are very flexible. So that's just, like, a little, a little fun tidbit for how people would decide where they were going to live. But the second question is, how do you actually get a house? It's, you know, not like today, there's no developers, there's no housing markets, there are landlords in the sense of, like, literal feudal lord, 
whomst you swear fealty to. But, you know, they're not doing, like, a credit check and, like... I mean, I guess in a way they're doing... They're doing a credit check in that, like, are you a rapscallion? A knave? But, you know, it's more like, we want to know that you're, you know, not an actual murderer. It's not like, what, what number does the bank account say you have? So, basically, in most cases, you, again, either could inherit a house from someone else, or typically, you know, if a family member died and left you a house, I mean, you really won the lottery there, or you might be able to, like, take on and pay, like, a rent to the feudal lord, like, your housing is part of your situation, but, like, for the most part, in the Middle Ages, you're looking at probably you are building your own house slash your community, your family, your friends, etc. You're putting together some kind of house for yourself to live in so that you can start your own, you know, family house, basically. Your own, your own household. And the types of houses really varied across the time period, particularly in the early... Um, in the early Middle Ages, we see a lot of, like, just completely thatched houses, or almost entirely thatched houses. So think, like, you know, houses where you would build a frame, um, typically either like an A-frame or kind of a conical shape out of long, like, wooden poles, basically, and, like, sticks, and you would tie them together and make this, like, kind of think like like a big trellis and then you would take straw or you would take other types of like twigs and thatch and you would just thatch the whole thing um and you might do what's called waddle and daub along maybe like the bottom most layer of that like trellis like the bottom most part of it that's near the ground to give it a little extra stability and waddle and daub is when you would take waddles which were like little thin sticks and you would weave it through your lattice work and then you would daub like mud mixed with like hay and stuff onto it and it would harden into a wall um, and these were basically like extremely rudimentary houses they for obvious reasons do not survive into the modern day because you know the the straw breaks down but uh, if you look up like you know ra like medieval roundhouse you can see what it is and these were typically very simple houses relatively easy to construct even like the poorest of the poor could afford to put this together because straw is basically like a byproduct of grains so you, you know it, it's literally you're making your house out of trash essentially um and the way that you would set up that house would be you would put a big like central hearth fire in the middle and there would be a hole right at kind of the, the peak of the roof and all the smoke would kind of escape through that hole but would also get kind of like go around through all the straw so this served the dual purpose of both killing off any bugs that wanted to live in the thatch and you could also hang like dried or drying meats and food up there, and the smoke would literally just smoke it for you. Uh, it was not the great environment to live in, because it was definitely very smoky and like not great for your lungs, but 
you know, again, people weren't spending that much time inside either. <laughs> like, you were mostly going to be outside doing stuff. You weren't just, like, hanging out inside. <laughs> Wasn't a lot to do in there. And then as the Middle Ages wear on, we see more and more the waddle and daub part of the house. Like, the part that's um, more of a solid wall gets taller and taller. And the thatched part becomes relegated just to the roof line itself. So, you know, think about something like uh, Tudor-style houses where you can see, like, the wooden frame. And then there's, like, all those, like, white parts on the wall. Like, that would likely, like, historically, it would have been made with wobble and daub technique. Um, and then, like, painted or whitewashed or whatever so that it didn't show, like, bits of straw and rocks and whatever. Um... In So the final two things is sometimes people would have houses made out of stone or out of wood. Uh, stone was typically, or stone and then also brick could both be used, but that doesn't, we don't see that as much until after the Black Death, basically. Um, partly because it starts to be seen as much more hygienic to have, like, basically a house that's going to keep out any, any, like, they were thinking of it in terms of like bad smells, but also keeping out all the miasmas. Um, but it also has the added benefit of being better at keeping out like rats and bugs and mice and that sort of thing. But again, it's very expensive. It's very time consuming and labor intensive, obviously. So prior to the Black Death, we don't really see that outside of like either wealthier people or people who are living in a place where it's very easy and abundant to get stone, basically, which is not all places. Um, and the other thing is, of course, wooden houses, which are, you know, also there There are examples of that in the Middle Ages, but for the most part, wood was a very important resource to make tools, to make furniture, and as a fuel to heat your house and cook your food. So building a house entirely out of wood, like, you know, think of, like, the log cabins that we see in, like, you know, settler communities in the Americas. Like, that just wouldn't have been done whatsoever because it would have been just a huge waste of resources, basically, from, like, in in that situation. What about bricks? Great question, Margo. <laughs> so, bricks are basically a luxury item. Because you have to, like, individually make all the bricks, and then you have to make cement, and then you need to, like, take the bricks and then lay them out properly, <laughs> and, like, know how to build in a way that all the bricks aren't going to collapse. So, genuinely, we start, like, that is not to say that, I I'm, I'm generalizing here, obviously, like, um, in certain areas where it's easier to make bricks, so say, like, you know, hotter countries where you can, like, have that clay and set out the bricks and do all that, right? Like, in and around the Mediterranean, bricks tend to be somewhat more, um, more typical, but, you know, they remain something that, for the most part, is being used by, like, wealthier people and people who can afford a nicer house, um... And we start seeing it used in castles in about the, I want to say, like 
15th century because before then like again you would just use huge stones basically and put those together so uh, it, it's again it's very much like bricks tend to be a very regional thing and tend to tend to be used in like homes for the like relatively well off like you're not necessarily like fabulously wealthy but like you know it, it, it is definitely a mark of status to have like actual proper bricks rather than like building some form of like mud house basically where you are like you know essentially again building some type of frame out of sticks or other you know you know whether that's ugh, let me restart that again <laughs> where you are yeah so i mean if if you're just like a regular regular old peasant person like for the mo for most of the middle ages you're not going to be looking at a brick house you're going to be looking at like assorted wood frame with varying amounts of thatched roof meeting a like wobble and daub style walls which is basically like mud mi again like mixed in with you know maybe some sand some straw possibly animal dung like anything that was going to be sticky and was going to dry and like harden basically <laughs> So, speaking of furniture that I talked about before, next question is, where are you getting your furniture to furnish your nice new house that you have made out of mud and sticks? Well, first of all, you probably are once again going to have to make it yourself, or like, you know, somebody who you know is going to make it for you as a gift, maybe you're going to inherit stuff. It was very common to pass down furniture um, through families because, again, it was typically something that was made with the intention that it was going to be able to be passed down. Um, or if you could afford it, you might be able to pay a craftsperson, like a craftsman, to make furniture for you. Obviously, the wealthier you get, the more, you know, specialty craftsmen and crafts women also like you have access to so if you are setting up a big fancy house yeah you can get like gorgeous tapestries to hang on your walls and like beautifully carved tables and chairs but if you're just like a normal person you're probably not going to have a hell of a lot of furniture in the middle ages essentially you're going to need a place to sleep a place to eat something to sit on while you eat and something where you can keep your clothes, tools, assorted, like any other assorted possessions you might have. So let's start out with storage. So the most basic piece of furniture in the Middle Ages would be the chest or the trunk. Uh, it's actually called a trunk because traditionally they were made out of whole tree trunks. So yeah, apparently that is etymologically where it comes from. And you would like you would have your tree trunk and then kind of like split it so that you'd have like a lid and a bottom and like I guess kind of like shave down or like saw off enough of the bottom that it could lay flat and you get the like kind of rounded over top or you can also like cut it so it's a more flat top which was very useful because a lot of the time right like your chest or your trunk was where you were going to be storing 
basically anything of value that you had. So like clothes, tools, maybe even like dishes in some cases. So, you know, you'd want it to be somewhat of a solid thing. So it makes sense it's all made out of like one piece of wood, basically, if possible. Um, and, you know, some of these that have survived are like absolutely gorgeous, like with elaborate carvings and iron bands around it and that sort of thing. But if you're like a regular person, it's probably going to be, you know, a pretty standard issue wooden chest with like some some amount of metal fittings so that you can close it and like keep things safe. Um, and having it be flat on top rather than rounded made it even more useful because in many cases this would have doubled as, you know, it could also serve as extra seating if you needed seating. It could serve as like a small table to either prepare food or, you know, eat your meals off of. And some of the bigger ones would even have been used as like a... Uh, like a place to sleep at certain times. So definitely your your multi-purpose item. You would also likely want some kind of actual bed if at all possible. So for most people, you know, again, your mattress quote unquote would probably be like a large bag that was then filled with straw, hay, dried leaves, basically whatever you could put in it to make it kind of squishy. And you could, if you were like the poorest of the poor, just throw that on the floor and sleep on it. But since the floor of your house is almost certainly dirt that has been like packed down really hard and then swept daily to keep it like hard, basically, and not like muddy and goopy, it would be fine to sleep on the floor, but like there are going to be bugs and you don't want the bed bugs to bite. But, I mean, also just, like, regular bugs as well. It's, like, not the best sleeping directly on the floor. So we start seeing, you know, people would also have, like, essentially what would look something like a low table where it's, like, you know, kind of a frame and then some kind of board to hold up your little mattress. Um, if you were a wealthier person, though, beds become more and more elaborate as the centuries move on. Um, you can start getting, you know, if you're very wealthy and fancy, you can have a mattress stuffed with wool, stuffed with uh, feathers. And we also start seeing that beds become more elaborate in that you would have your frame. And if you were wealthy, you would also have um, like the four poster bed, because the point of that was that then you could hang extra hangings around your bed, both for privacy and to keep you warm in the winter. And the final thing is the frame eventually replaces the board, like the hard board that the mattress would rest on with instead having um, ropes basically tied across the frame. So you have ropes that are tied tightly to stay taut and then you put the mattress on top of it. So then when you sit in it, right, like you kind of can sink into the ropes. It's sort of like think like like a mesh kind of hammock basically um but instead of being mesh there like most of the ropes are all gonna like it's not a perfect mesh or net but it's like kind of holding you like that fun fact beds stay like that basically up until the 19th century um when we start getting like uh like spring mattresses 
And that's why if you see like beds from back in the day, they're also short because you can't actually lay flat in those types of beds because the ropes, right? Like they don't support your body weight in that same way. So your actual like, you know, your lower back, your butt and like your thighs are going to sink in. So when you're in bed, you're kind of like you're semi upright and kind of like folded a little bit. And that's also why in a lot of old paintings, when you see people in bed, right, they're painted to look as if they're like kind of sort of sitting upright. And it's because they would have been like they would have been somewhat like they they wouldn't have been able to lay fully flat in something like that. But that's basically what your bed situation. Isn't that where sleep tight comes from, too? Yeah, it does. Because if you if the ropes weren't tied tight enough, then you would, you know, your mattress would collapse onto the ground in the middle of the night, which is, like, not a fun time for anyone. Um, and, again, I mean, beds were something, like, especially nice ones, like the four-poster beds were, like, you know, master craftsman level of stuff. Like, this was in, like, just incredible wealth to be able to have, like, a really nice bed. Like, it was a huge flex if you could, like, have a nice bed. And it was also, like, for a lot of the, you know, lords and ladies and other, like, aristocracy and stuff, it was a big flex to have, like, guest bedrooms as, like, we get into the early modern period because it's, like, wow, not only can they afford a bed for themselves, but they can afford these, like, fancy beds for when guests come over rather than you know just having to give them like yeah whatever here's like this regular like boring fine bed it's like wow this person could afford to do like a four poster bed for their guests incredible so the master craftsman is it just a regular carpenter that makes beds or is there like a bed maker that's a great question and i think it really um, it really comes down to, like, I think they would probably still be carpenters for the most part, but I, if, if I'm recalling correctly, and I cannot recall right at this very moment, there are people, like, especially as we get into the early modern period, who would specialize in making, like, these elaborate, like, carved, beautiful work of art for poster beds. Um, whereas, you know, in in the Middle Ages, especially in the earlier part, you know, you would definitely just be, like, throwing this together yourself. I do have the final piece of setting up the house, though, and that's that you need somewhere to eat. Um, so, from the Middle Ages is where we actually get the phrase uh, room and board, because your table that you would eat off of would likely just be a long large board that was placed across either logs or stumps or um, trestles because the idea was that the table could be set up and then put away as it was needed because again these houses are not incredibly big so you need to be able to move stuff around easily and have it be quite versatile and for the most part, you would also be sitting on stools and long benches. The idea of owning, like, a chair with an actual back to it was, you know, the height of luxury, basically. Like, even in great halls, for the most part, 
most people were sitting on like long benches and it was only like you know the king and the queen and the fancy people who got to sit in like the 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 chair that has a back on it you know um and this again just comes down to like the value of the wood that you had available because again like this is what you were using to make your tools to make plows to make you know all of your furniture to heat your home through the winter to cook your food so it, a lot of the time you just couldn't afford to have these extra parts of furniture and you just kind of had to go with what you absolutely needed um similarly like Apparently, that is also where we get the etymology of cupboard, because you would have a board that would be off to the side that would hold the cups for the house and, like, the plates and stuff, so that's the board with the cups. Yeah, yeah, literally, that seems to, that's, seems to be where that word comes from, is that it is the board that holds the cups. Um, and yeah, I mean, really, that was what was going into setting up your house was putting together the actual house and then you know again either making or being gifted because you know you could be gifted things at your wedding or shortly after your wedding or again as we will talk about in later episodes about inheritances like it was also quite common for people to leave furniture and you know household items and linens and that sort of thing in their wills and um because that was also something that women could inherit much more frequently. Um, so we do see in a lot of wills, right, like, if if someone dies, right, like, the land or the house might go to the son, but then the daughters will get, you know, furniture and clothing and these other things that are, like, basically the movable goods that are also incredibly valuable at this point. And that is basically what I have to say about pre-modern setting up house because it it's really it stays quite similar I mean you know the furniture becomes somewhat more elaborate over time and you know chairs with backs on them become a bit more available as you know wood stops being the like main or like really only way to like heat your home and cook your food but it really stays like that up until, you know, the Industrial Revolution when we start to see, like, mass-produced, cheap items. And now I'll hand it over to Margaret. Sweet. So, I... I am going to talk about something that seems really, really specific, um, but I promise there's a reason as to why it's in this episode. <laughs> so, um, with this topic of like setting up house there's a, some really interesting ways that uh empire shows up here and especially in the 19th century there's a really fascinating study of how women in decorating their houses especially in north america performed empire um within their homes and like by bringing you know, quote-unquote oriental styles into their homes and things like this. So, like, you would want to have items from all of the different places that your country, be that Britain or the U.S., uh, had colonies of, essentially. Because, yes, the U.S. has colonies. We just don't like to call them that. But there's another very specific and kind of 
so universal that we don't often think of it um, unless you're like a weirdo historian like us uh, ways a, a, a way that empire sort of makes itself known um, and this is through um, how we conceive of keeping our bodies clean and where our bodies and like the outside world or other people like where our bodies end and where that space begins um, and throughout the early modern period is really when this becomes women's work and women's like housework um, because as I'm sure we've mentioned in previous episodes right um, before like, the early medieval period antiquity all this these periods in Europe um, keeping your body clean was kind of an individual task um, or you would do it like it was your your own personal responsibility. Um, it was often like a group activity, right? You would go to the baths or something, um, but it was it was something that like you were responsible for keeping up with your own body, and it meant like your physical body that you washed with water. Um, and so you know, in this period, we have like that keeping keeping the house clean was sort of always women's work to varying degrees it was done collectively depending on your station the era that you're existing in your income family size etc as to like how many people you as the woman who was running the house might have like in terms of people helping you keep it clean but keeping the body clean really became women's work in the 1500s and the reason this happens is kind of fascinating um it sort of has to do with the plague and sort of not mostly has to do with clothing. Um, so in, and this is specific, this part of this conversation is specific to Europe. I'm going to sort of branch out into how this affects colonialism and the rest of the world writ large in a moment, but in Europe, right, especially in uh, like all the British Isles, there were public baths and people would go, to the baths and like yeah i mean here's the thing is people tend to forget that like the roman empire was enormous and just like stretched out everywhere and everywhere they went they built giant bathhouses and then it's like everyone forgets that the middle ages come right after the roman empire like those bathhouses are still there it's not like oh man the romans left everything they built collapsed um so it stayed really really popular going to the baths um it did become much more like seen in the middle like especially as the middle ages wear on they come to be seen as this place of like ill repute because you have a lot of sex workers hanging around at the baths because you know it makes sense everybody's already naked anyway like you know and it was also seen as a very like luxurious thing to like fully submerge your body in the water to like bathe i do want to put a pin in that though that I am saying specifically bathing, which means to, like, put your body in the water. That's why it's called a bathing suit, right? When I say, like, bathing was luxurious, that does not mean washing wasn't done. People washed themselves in the Middle Ages. It would just be much more of, like, you know, again, you could go to the baths, but that was seen as, like, eh, maybe touch and go with, like, morality. Um, but, you know, you would still wash yourself with, like, think of like you know what what you see in like movies from the 19th century with you you have like 
you know, your your basin and your jug and you would kind of like sponge bath yourself down or you would like have like a smaller tub of water that you could fill like they were called like a hip bath where you could kind of sit in this water at home like with some more privacy and wash yourself that way so like kind of similar to having a shower really where you're kind of like washing yourself down while not being submerged just i I really just have to emphasize that like the middle ages people were like not all of them and not all the time but they were pretty like clean as compared to what comes in the early modern period yeah especially in britain um so yeah so and like i mean if you didn't live in a major city and you were close to like moving water that was a space that you could utilize to bathe or like actually wash yourself in um but some things happen uh in the like late 1400s early 1500s and that's the the prevalence of linen undergarments becomes really popular along with this idea of how disease and bodily excretions enter and exit the body um, sort of changes so we still have like this humoral idea but there's this idea of which isn't totally incorrect but of like toxins can get in through your skin that your skin is this like very permeable layer of your body um and so submerging it into water was not seen as being good you didn't want anything that would like throw your body into extremes so you didn't want to get into water that was too cold and you certainly didn't want to get into water that was too hot and you didn't want to expose yourself to the uh ill morals of the public baths because morality was also linked to like your bodily function how well you could like maintain health and vigor and so like if you were out there being exposed to like licentious deeds then that might make you sick as well so there sort of stops people stop so much wanting to fully bathe their bodies and instead you have this idea of the importance of a linen undergarment um and this takes on sort of all across europe uh essentially the belief is that all of your bodily excretions are ways of ridding yourself of toxins and diseases and Uh, So, like, you know, your normal, like, getting rid of food waste bits of bodily excretions, but also any sweat, anything that comes through your skin is, like, getting rid of toxins. And so you want to get that off of your skin as soon as possible, um, but not necessarily submerge all of your skin in water. So linen, which is this, like, wonderful, nice, like, soft, flexible breathable natural fiber um, you can make these very bleached white light clothing articles out of them and that would be the article that you wore closest to your body and in the ideal world of the very very wealthy you would change it all the time Um, if you were royalty in this period sometimes multiple times a day Um, and like this would soak up all of your miasmic excretions and then you could remove it from your body and put on something else. And I mean, it does 
keep you from being like too smelly and gross uh there was also like if if you were relatively wealthy um in most of mainland Europe, they were really fastidious about washing your hands and face every day, sometimes twice a day, and washing your hands before you ate. Um, and then if you could afford it, perfumes were really big, especially in France. So you would, and like I know it was like Louis XIV was known for changing his clothes like four times a day um, and just being like constantly covered in perfume to the point that he developed an allergy to all synthetic scents. Um and made himself really, really sick. But these things were a little less prevalent on the British Isles. Um, a lot of people in the British Isles just gave up like washing with water entirely for a considerable period of time. And whenever they would leave and go to mainland Europe, people would be like, wow, you're so gross. But then people, especially in England, would point to the other British Isles where it was a lot harder to access bleached linen. Uh, so the linen would be sort of yellow or brown, and they would be like, well, they're actually really gross, especially the Irish, because it was really hard to access bleached linen in Ireland. So they would wear more of like cream or dark brown colored linens as their base clothing, and the English would be like, they're actually gross, and it was like, you guys are all equally gross. Everyone thought everyone on the British Isles was disgusting, which I think is just brilliant given what is to come in terms of imperialism. Just like, ha. So anyway, to sort of set up what's going on in the rest of the world before the Brits and Europeans sort of show up everywhere, um, we have the 16th century, right? The, the late 1500s is when Europeans really start trading with Western and Southern Africa, right? So this is getting out of where like the Islamic world is really prevalent and into more of like Africa. Um, I mean, it's a continent, but like what in the cultural zeitgeist we think of as Africa, not as, like, Egypt or Algeria. Yeah, I mean, I think, in in fairness, there it, there is also, like, right, a very... There is historically quite a difference between Northern Africa versus Sub-Saharan Africa and, like, Western and Eastern Africa, and particularly when we are discussing the transition from the early modern world into, like, from the medieval and then into the early modern world, uh... Because, you know, like, there had been this, like, to to some degree, a somewhat, like, continuous Mediterranean, yeah. like, cross-cultural exchanges. Whereas, you know, this is when we start to see, like, the rest of Africa coming into contact with the rest of Europe. Yeah, exactly. So we're getting into um, Western and Southern Africa. And here is where people tended to have very different styles of dress, right? And so they were not wearing linens of any sort. Um, and we're usually in a lot of places, especially in Western Africa, did not like clothe themselves from the waist up. Um, and this really freaked out Europeans, especially the English, like the French and the Dutch and the Portuguese tended to be a little more like chill about things. But, you know, the English are people known for their open and accepting ways. <laughs> Universally regarded as just so open to change and other people's traditions. Uh, really, it, it freaked them out. They were like, I can't believe that these people aren't wearing any linens. And what, so what was happening in West Africa, right? Um, most West Africans had these complex practices of ritual bathing, um, 
where the you know you would submerge yourself in bodies of water and wash that way washing of hands and feet and faces um also washing before entering and exiting homes um before eating was always practiced and then also this uh, a culture of smearing which was melting um some sort of oil or fat and putting it on the body um all over the skin like immediately after washing and um you like putting scents or herbs into that then so that then you smelled like the the herbs and your skin was like moisturized it was essentially moisturizing but like it was all sorts of different like palm oil or like lard based things that you would use um still popular in lots of places of africa um and you know they took elaborate and fastidious care of hair and practice tattoo and scarification um so skin that was exposed you know again from the waist up usually would be decorated and these english writers uh were just really shocked they were like oh my gosh they decorate their their actual skin as if it were clothing they compared the tattoo and scarification to damask or damask damask um Right, and so the body, the boundary of the body was different, and thus expectations of what and how things were to be cleaned was different. So these Europeans who are coming down are so, the idea is that your linen, your outside white bleached linen is the outside of your body, right? You don't, you take it off just to change that. You, you, you're never naked. Never naked. That's how they exist. Never nudes. The OGs. (laughs) But yeah, also just to... It give people a visual of what these like linen yeah. garments looked like like if you're unfamiliar with it this would be like for women like yeah like a shift like it would have been a long sleeve white like shapeless kind of dress yeah. that you would that was like the base layer that you would then layer your other skirts and bodices and stuff on top of and for men it would be like a long loose shirt like when i mean long i mean like yeah yeah, like, it would, like, go past your butt, and you could, like, tuck it underneath, and you'd also have some kind of, like, linen, like, britches, basically, to, like, also, like, in, not not in all cases, but in, t- typically, basically, like, your entire body was covered in this. It was not, like, a, like, it's not, like, undergarments as we would think of them today. This was, like, a full-body <laughs> experience. Yeah, so you're... Your body is covered, and it's it's so that all of these excretions, excretions get sucked up by the linen. Um, the issue is that when you're traveling, so the the reason that this right, this is the these are the times when this transition from cleaning yourself as an individual task turns into the workload of the women of Europe. And it becomes this other thing sort of later as well, right? So having these linens, one, having more than one of any article of clothing is like asking a lot at this time period. This is all handwoven fabric, often on small looms. It's very difficult to make things. So having multiple linens is like a whole thing um but also washing them is a thing and when you're not washing your body so much you're just changing out the linens when you're um when you're just changing the linens you have to wash them 
you know, ideally after everywhere. Obviously, that's not happening, but it's an incredible amount of work. Um, wandering things at this time involved boiling a lot of water, putting all the clothes in these boiling water, using lye-based soaps and scrubbing the clothes, rinsing them out, uh, and then like wringing them out and hanging them to dry. It's incredibly labor intensive. And this becomes women's work because it becomes part of the household work. Um, and there's a few ways that this sort of like results, but there's a, a kind of interesting thing that happens in this first period of colonization of like a uh, colonial trading that happens with uh, Western and Southern Africa is that <laughs> there are, I don't know if you guys know this, but there aren't, like, a lot of women on boats. There's not a lot of women on European boats. There's also not a lot of access to, like, abundant fresh water that you can boil for laundering clothes. But also they weren't, like, bathing. So you're on this boat coming from, you know, Great Britain for, like, months at a time. These guys were literally showing up (laughs) In linens that were rotting off of their bodies and then being like, y'all are disgusting for not wearing shirts. Um, Yeah, it was just like this baffling level of like what actually is clean. And it was cleaner to have a rotting garment on than to not be. And yeah, and they smelled awful. Uh, Everyone in Africa thought they were really gross. It was a whole time. But yeah, so that's that's sort of what's going on outside of Europe at this time, and obviously, like in North America at this time, um, there aren't linens being worn either. A majority of clothing is made from uh, various processes of drying and tanning animal skins. Um, also tended to wear less clothing if the temperatures were good. Um, A lot of bathing, a lot of bathing in rivers, ritualized bathing, also um, especially in North America of ritualized hair removal. Um, When the Europeans show up with beards, um, the indigenous people of North America are like, y'all are so gross that's awful and disgusting and would like try and get them to remove the hair from their faces. They thought it was uh, nasty and a sign of not wanting to clean yourself. Also hankies are noted, especially among the Iroquois as being disgusting. Like why would you one waste decent fabric on like stuff coming out of your nose? And two, why would you wipe your nose and then keep it in your pocket? Which I think is just, like, the most on point. Like, I mean, I I get now, right, if I use a handkerchief, I, I immediately wash it in, like, that day in my washing machine. But at the time, you know, who knows how often you're washing your hankies. Um, <laughs> that was just a really funny thing to see uh, in historical records. Um, so, yeah, and then we have this weird thing happening in Europe that also comes over to North America as the colonies get set up, which is um, this idea about like family purity and who is doing your laundering. So 
if you're very wealthy, right, you have people doing a lot of your household tasks for you, or they're part of this really large household. And so there are laundresses, women whose jobs it is to just do laundry for, you know, whatever portion of the community that she lives in. And because of how these linens are regarded, they're regarded as a part of your body. Um, it's seen as this, it's not like a sexual act in that, like, people want to have people wash their clothes, but it's seen as, like, like women who are doing laundry for people outside of their own home it's not there's something untrustworthy about them right they're getting they're getting in on other people's secrets especially if they're washing your sheets um they're like they might they they just they know too many intimate details about too many people um and also um so there's some really interesting things that happen because of this shift when Europeans come to North America, right? Obviously, they are found to be disgusting, hairy monsters by the indigenous people who try to take pity on them and teach them how to, you know, wash themselves. And they have nothing to do with it. <laughs> They're like, no, we're going to keep wearing our linens. Um, but I know we've talked about this before. In Jamestown and in Quebec, there is a crisis of initially these European countries just send dudes and dudes don't know how to take care of their clothing. So not only are they starving to death, but they also can't do their own laundry. And so they a lot of people end up falling ill um, because they're wearing horrifying, dirty clothes and not like keeping their bodies clean and you know, sweating in clothes and then wearing them to bed and getting ill because of it. It's like this whole nasty cycle. And essentially they have to start importing a lot of women because indigenous women don't want to have anything to do with them. Um, so this is where we get the Jamestown Brides and Les Filles which for the Jamestown Brides specifically, they were given um, by the various entities who were chartering them, um, full outfits of clothing, hats, caps, gloves, stockings, multiple petticoats, um, and shifts. They were also given two sets of bedsheets, which is like this huge prize. Um, and when you have the Puritans come over, right, they're coming over also with all of these linens. Um, and initially because of how difficult it is to set up community and because especially the first winter that the puritans are in massachusetts there's this period where almost everyone gets sick and there's only like six or seven people who are like conscious and awake enough to take care of everybody and to be changing their clothing and be, to be changing their bed linens that initially when they try and set up their community and when the women are initially brought to jamestown in both of these ang english-speaking areas they initially try and do a like community labor setup they try and get everyone to sort of like pool resources and all of the women like share laundering duties and share homemaking duties and again because of what i said before there's this like really interesting idea that even though that would be 
better for everyone. Um, these ideas of class status and of sexuality and of where your body ends and someone else's body begins ends up tearing this apart. So the dudes get all upset because if, um, if somebody is old or weak or sick or whatever, um, and so they're not doing as much work, but they get just as nice of clothes and they get bed linens and they get hats and whatever. They're like, why am I even doing this work? So it's like the most white dude bro thing ever, but it's happening in like Puritan New England. But also there's this idea that if a woman is doing a man's laundry and making his food and stuff, that care, part of that care is also sexual care. And so men start getting real fussy about whether or not their wives are going to be doing other men's laundry or making other men's food because they're like, well, then they're just going to have sex with all of these other men. Like, it'll just be a free-for-all. Which, just the slippery slope fallacy at its best. Um, and so you have this really sh difficult time for early colonial women where a task that would have been communal in Europe, where they had a large family base, you might be living in a multi-generational home or in a town with a square. Um, this very few women in Europe would do laundry totally by themselves. Um, you would either hire out a laundress or again, like you would be doing it with other people. But these are, you know, young people for the most part who are setting up new houses in a new country. And now you're saying that they can't do communal work. Women are doing all of this laundry by themselves. And it is an incredible amount of work um, and is not kept up with in the way that you would probably be ideal for everyone involved, but it's just like, it's so labor intensive that you really can't. Um, and so in these Puritan and early English colonial settings, ideas of cleanliness, um, become really important to ideas of like spiritual purity. So, yeah, cleanliness is next godliness. So it's it has all of these different layers. So if you are like physically unclean, then you must be spiritually unclean. If your clothes are unclean, then you are unclean and you must spiritually be unclean. But also um, the cleanliness of a society as a whole is reflected by the practices of its women. And specifically by looking at the cleanliness practices of women in a society, you can see how pure the society's like sexual practices are. Um, and this is where we get, so I know, I know we talked about this in one of the bonuses, but the, I, the change in the usage of the term slut. So slut, is a word for a slovenly woman, a woman who can't keep up her house. But as you get into this colonial period and you have all of this, this laundering that has to be done and also women who are in close proximity to um, indigenous men and also uh, enslaved and free men of color, this idea of women 
stepping out with these men and then like defiling the whole society because that's what happens if white women have sex with anybody else other than these very clean white men Ugh. um that that like it anyway the whole society becomes impure and so this slovenliness of a woman's home how well she's keeping specifically the undergarments of her family clean um reflects on her sexual fidelity um and starts being used uh as part of the evidences against women who are prosecuted for adultery and infanticide um, so if a woman has sex outside of marriage or sex with a married man and then gets pregnant and kills the children so that they don't like know or if she you know aborts or and there's any evidence of that um, then she can be prosecuted for infanticide and adultery and then she would be hanged um, and part of the evidence is like that she was physically unclean that she did not keep a clean home that her linens were not well washed um anyway that's where slut that that shift in slut happens where it's it's not just that you are physically dirty but you are really gross uh in terms of like being a philanderer there's also um some so as we move forward in like the colonial period as uh, we get into the early republic um, there's a bunch of plagues that move through North America so you have a, a serious issue with yellow fever specifically um, this comes up in is it in the musical of Hamilton because the people I'm about to talk about is one of them is Alexander Hamilton okay because uh, in 1793 there is like one of the worst um, urban instances of yellow fever in Philadelphia, which it's super famous because at the time Philadelphia was the capital of the new United States. Um, and anyway, there's these again, sort of changing ideas of what needs to be cleaned to prevent disease. Do you need to clean a body or is cleaning the clothes good enough um, and we have these records of Alexander Hamilton coming down from Albany to visit his father-in-law Philip Schuyler um, and do some you know government work-ins and they're super worried that they're going to bring yellow fever down with them or up with them or they're going somewhere and they're going to bring yellow fever and he says he writes specifically that they left all of their clothes in Albany pretty sure that's what it was um, and they've only brought their linens, so their underclothes, which have been freshly washed. And he says that common sense can show that there is like obviously nothing will happen, um, which is really interesting. So, and you have all these like ideas about um, how to clean your house. Um, the whitewashing is really important at this time because that's going to show that like. Uh, there's, there's multiple things that you can do in whitewashing. So, like, if you have, like, the wattle and daub thatched house and you whitewash the walls, um, one, they're going to look white. So you'll be able to see the dirt on them. But also you can use things to paint and smear on the walls that will change the way that the house smells that's supposed to, like, keep out the diseases. And as, as like, this goes on and 
the U.S. and Canada sort of like take on more sort of like we're actual real functioning society with like this large trade network. Um, white men, specifically genteel white men, so like owning class, um, especially in the South, the planters who owned slaves um, started doing this like sort of fashion dandyism where they became obsessed with washing their hair and face and hands and teeth every day um and having this sort of juxtaposition between them and the enslaved people um which was also reflected in northern states where slavery was illegal but you would (laughs) You would hire free people of color to be servants so that you could have the aesthetic of antebellum South because gross. Um, but yeah, they would, these men would try and get themselves, you know, as you'd wear these like all white suits with these like pressed white shirts and wash your hands a lot and keep wash your face every day and clean your teeth a lot and like slick your hair down and have your hair wet all the time. Um, and it, essentially it was that like by showing that they were like the most clean and pure they were like closer to god and were thus you know supposed to be this ruling class right um essentially like if the closer you are to god the fewer people who know that you poop um and eventually like middle and owning class women got in on this too and it became more and more of this like class divide that your hands and hair and teeth especially would be clean um and it was this very the teeth thing especially was a it it still is a very north american thing um but it it was this way of recreating the, the sort of conspicuous consumption of the noble classes of Europe in this planting class in the south of I have someone who can brush my teeth for me um, and I control the body of that person and I can create the juxtaposition between my body and their body and their body is used for cleaning my body and uh, also let's not forget the if uh, if you've seen or read Les Mis, you know about selling teeth because poor people would have to sell their teeth to make ends meet. And if you were a rich person and your teeth had all fallen out because you ate too much sugar or didn't take enough care of them, it's fine because you could just buy poor people's teeth to put in your mouth instead. So there's like this added layer of juxtaposition of like, not only are these poor people like cleaning my teeth for me, I can buy their actual teeth to put into my mouth. Or if you own that person, you can just pull their teeth out and put them in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's real grim. Trust the Americans could make it worse. <laughs> France is doing America can do it worse. Um but yeah, this pretty much is the like way that ideas about like what is the responsibility of women in a marriage in a household um goes on for like up through the 19th century until you have the introduction of germ theory and people realize you need to wash your body. Um, And that is a much slower process than we like to think that it was. Uh, It wasn't like someone was like, hey, there's germs here. Uh, You know, it was like discovery of bacteria, 
whole process of like new and different microscopes oh viruses like it's a whole thing um and understanding how germs and bacteria and viruses actually move whether or not they can move through the air or just on surfaces if they move in water was like a whole process if you want to hear more about that process i have bonuses for you <laughs> it's uh there there's a i have a whole story about how people were shockingly okay with there being poop in their drinking water in 19th century london that's disgusting okay um yeah um, but yeah, this continues on. So this is essentially like, right, when you're getting, when if you are a female presenting person at this time, right, if you're a woman and you're getting married, essentially what you're signing up for is keeping everybody else's body clean for the rest of time, or you are a dirty slut who's going to hell. Um, and yeah, so then, and so we have like germ theory is introduced and that really sort of changes the body back into like being more of a physical, like my corporeal body that my clothes come off of. And I, I clean my body and then I put clean clothes onto it again. Um, and that really does not happen until the 20th century. Um, yeah. So... Well, I think today we learned a lot about how you can, how people build houses, how you acquire furniture, and then how you keep all the stuff that's in your house clean, including yourself and your family members. Um, and how all of that reflects on your sex life. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Like, and we will be getting into this more as we, you know, progress through this season, but like, right, historically, sex and sexuality was... Like, we tend to think of it as, like, ah, like, no one ever spoke about that, ever. Like, it it was it was only in the 1960s with the, you know, like, free love and sexual liberation. It's like, no, no, no. Like, the Victorians were pretty prudish about being, like, no one can ever talk about sex, ever. But before then, like, sex and sexuality, like, that, that was the talk of the town. And it was tied into everything. Like, anything and anything, like, any anything that you could possibly be doing could be tied back to sex in some way like part of why you were not supposed to eat meat like like flesh of land-dwelling animals on holy days is partly because it like in the middle ages right catholic church like no no meat on certain days um it's partly because you're supposed to remember and think about the fact that, like, Jesus gave his flesh for us so you can abstain for this day and, like, ponder this. But it was also the fact that there there was also, like, this layer of, from humoral theory, that, like, you know, different foods could make you more, like, you know, like, lustful or less lustful. And, you know, the meat of animals was seen as being, like, you know, practically an aphrodisiac. So, like, no eating meat on the holy days because, you know, we don't we don't want people getting the wrong ideas. You should be having nice, pure thoughts. No, no sluttish thoughts. Do you want to do you want to hear my favorite insult that I found while doing this research? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so this woman, one of the goodies, goody housewife, good housewife, whatever her name is. Uh, I can't remember her name. It was something like Wilson or whatever. Um, but she was bringing charges against another good wife for theft and she called her a piss bed slut 
And this is because, like, okay, so there's an explanation for it. Um, because, and it reflects back on your linens being clean or dirty, right? So obviously her bed linens would be disgusting because she pissed the bed. But she, that is apparently if you have a bunch of sex, then, like, women supposedly would become incontinent. And so, like, if there was, like, stains like that in your bed, um, then that was because you were a dirty, dirty slut and was busy in your bed. It's definitely the sex. It's definitely not the, like, giving birth to, like, double-digit children that's making you incontinent. It's definitely the dick, not, not not the babies. Makes, makes perfect sense. Well, on that note, remember when this was supposed to be a nice professional podcast? <laughs> Piss bed slut! <laughs> yeah, whatever, Marco, your roof has no thatch. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Papiaga Project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!